Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play, of course. But a couple of new additions. The show is now available on Spotify and as a standalone Alexa skill. So if you're a Spotify user, you can now combine your music with your podcast, including Best of the Left. And if your home is an Alexa home, then you can enable the Best of the Left skill and stay caught up on every episode that way. Uh, these are also both a couple of good ways to lure in friends of yours to be new listeners of the show, uh, people maybe who aren't into podcasts. So if you know any Spotify users or Alexa owners looking for some interesting skills to add, be sure to hook them up with the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the catastrophic point where cutting taxes, racism, capitalism, immigration policy and our punitive rather than rehabilitative criminal justice system all meet. Our clips today come from Lead Stories, Counterspin, Off Kilter, a portion of a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, Redacted Tonight, and The Majority Report. Five months after the U.S. Department of Justice skewered the police department and criminal justice system in Ferguson, Missouri, for targeting blacks and treating them largely as a source of revenue for the city, newly appointed municipal court judge Donald McCullen yesterday announced a series of changes, chief among them dropping all arrest warrants for minor crimes and infractions issued before December the 31st, 2014. This report confirmed what people in Ferguson had been saying for decades, that they were targeted. They were targeted from for minor crimes all the way up to very serious crimes, of course, but routine kinds of crimes, broken headlights, cars illegally parked, small things like that, that resulted in a blizzard of tickets. And that was the routine. And then, of course, over time, because they were unable to pay these tickets and fines, the amounts started mounting. And it became a case where many of these Minor crimes or infractions, they're not crimes, minor infractions uh, would now result in their arrest. And this, they kept saying, was a way for the city to make money. It's the same, let's say, in New York. People would be surprised to know that communities of color really are carrying a huge burden of delivering revenue to the city. And how does that happen? A simple thing. Alternate side of the street parking, let's just say. On one side, you can park for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 7 to 11. And the other side, Tuesday and Thursday from 11 to 7. And your life in New York City, if you happen to own a car, in most areas is about moving your car. You're one minute late or you're, <laughs> you forgot or you woke up late. You have a nice little gift waiting for you 
under your windshield wiper. And then it becomes, you know, they add on to it and add on to it so that your lateness in moving your car will now be a major problem financially for you. So the city of New York, and I, I did a story some time ago about this, how certain communities were literally targeted for a blizzard of these kinds of tickets because the police were used not to uh, ensure safety to these neighborhoods, and they've just hired 1,500 more police officers, but the police are the revenue collectors for the city. They have nothing to do really with safety. It is about assigning them these jobs. Go out there and bring back as many tickets as possible. Uh, uh, you, you have shown your efficiency as a police officer based on the number of tickets you have issued, not based on the number of crimes you've prevented or the safety you have assured but the number of tickets you can write. So a police officer in many cases, and it's not just in Ferguson, this is par for the course across the country. Every African-American Latino community could tell you this is what the deal is. Minor things that could result in tickets, they write tickets real fast. And then the police officer would be said to be a good law enforcement officer. See, two different concepts. In African-American Latino communities, we have law enforcement. In white communities, we have policing, community policing, two different approaches. Well, that's what the people of Ferguson, Missouri, had been saying for a long time. The Justice Department uh, decided, well, okay, we'll do a big study. And it, it, it basically put in writing what people had been saying to them. And then, of course, it got the Justice Department stamp of approval and supposedly its authority as a credible document. And this was what caused the judge, Donald McCullen, who is African-American, to take some action yesterday, and it is considered a sweeping overhaul of Ferguson's uh, criminal justice and court systems. But there are a couple questions here, and, and we have to give credit where credit is due. Here we have a judge just coming in, and he has decided that he could make a change. And he has done so. So you give him some credit. And you say, thank you. <laughs> it's a good start. But that's what it is. It is a start. Because while it does give some breathing room, while it does communicate some measure of justice, while it does extend to the community the sentiment that says, we understand that you have been wronged. And here's a way that we can start afresh. Well, when you're doing that kind of work, you arbitrarily pick a date. And he did. He picked December the 31st, 2014 as the cutoff point. If you had any arrest warrants, 
issued because of these minor infractions and your inability to pay and so forth. We'll work something out. It's a concession. He's not saying it's it's a done deal and we're wiping the slate clean. He's saying he's it's a, it's gradual. He's saying we will use this as the cutoff date and we will re-examine these uh, outstanding tickets and so forth, and we will use this as the the, the cutoff date. And that's you know in the world of bureaucracy, it's it's a it's a gift. It's a it's a good move. It's a nice sign. I am interested, however, in the systemic issue here. And the systemic issue has to do with the Justice Department. The Justice Department should have known, because that's one of the functions of the Justice Department, to collect statistics, to examine these statistics in order to see trends that are disturbing. In the same way that the Justice Department supposedly should have been on top of this question of police brutality and use of force because it is the agency to which all the police departments presumably report and send in their statistics about all these different things that would indicate trends such as uh, police killings the reasons for them, the breakdowns, the statistical breakdowns of these killings that would expose certain trends. This is not rocket science. This this is what they're supposed to do, which it, it should have done, certainly in the city of Ferguson, because it had to dismantle a police a department next door to Ferguson. I forgot the name of the town now. Because the trends were very disturbing there. They suggested a pattern of corruption, a pattern of abuse. But the Justice Department is quite selective in how it chooses to move. And in cases where we see the Justice Department actually moving you find the correlation is that people have had to take to the streets and take extreme measures, if you will, to call to the attention of authorities what the authorities should have known a long time ago. So in Ferguson, look how many decades passed of this kind of treatment where we have, in effect, collusion between the criminal justice system and the police department to target the African-American community in Ferguson and in St. Louis generally, and to really look at these communities as in the way that that, uh, a predator regards prey. And 
Newt Gingrich comes out for criminal justice reform, you are right to look under the hood to question just how deep this popular reform is intended to go. Any improvements that help real people are to be wished for. But policing and prisons are systems with deep and far-reaching roots in U.S. life. We ought to have questions about reform that comes without an honest reckoning with the fact that some of what we call problems in the criminal justice system are not so much bugs as features. Our next guest engages these questions in an essay called Paying for Punishment, the New Debtor's Prison, which appears in the July-August issue of Boston Review. Donna Murch is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University, author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, and of the forthcoming Asada Taught Me, State Violence and Mass Incarceration from the Black Panthers to the Movement for Black Lives. She joins us now by phone from Inwood. Welcome to Counterspin, Donna Murch. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, this piece talks about ways that the state at various levels extracts money from criminalized people. What does that look like? What happens? Well, I started researching this piece after being solicited to write a piece on the criminalization of debt. And what I found out is that it's really, the two are related to each other, but this process of indebting people that have been criminalized by the state is really, I think, our most pressing problem and really a modern form of debtor's prison. Uh, Some people call it debtor's prison 2.0. And I think what really called attention to this was Ferguson. So the protests in Ferguson are known for highlighting the militarization of police, and that was the most obvious. But through a combination of the street protest and also organizing groups like Arch City Defenders, people discovered that Ferguson had this whole system of profiteering off of its black population. So the black population is about 66%, I think it's about two-thirds, but a significant portion between 20 and 25% of municipal revenue came from the whole system of ticketing and criminalization that targeted the black population overwhelmingly. And I use an example of this from Ferguson about how Michael Brown is shot in the context of Darren Wilson stopping him as he's crossing the street and this, you know, this, it's really not even a street, it's a lane inside the housing development where he lived. But the offense for which he was being accosted for was walking in the street, which is illegal in Ferguson. And 95% of people that are given that citation are African American. So when Ferguson happened, I think it shined a light on something that's a long-term problem, which is these ways that the state, especially municipalities, and states, uh, it doesn't happen in the federal system, use the entire criminal justice system to raise revenue. And I think that's really important because often when we think of incarceration, particularly in this moment, since 2008, the sheer cost of it has always been seen as a potential unifying force between bipartisan and left and right consensus. But the truth is that while people usually think about private prisons as the main way that incarceration makes money, if they're actually much more direct and I would say, you know, people are still gathering information about this nationally, but whole systems, not only of charging people for criminal justice debt, legal financial obligations, where if you are arrested, immediately you begin to incur criminal justice debt. So people are charged for 
every step along the way of incarceration, being put in a jail, being charged jail fees, if you receive a public defender, and 80% of people who are prosecuted are considered indigent. So the majority, if they, to, in order to receive legal representation, receive public defenders. If you choose not to go to jail and instead the court um, allows you a system of electronic monitoring, many municipalities have a system called offender-funded justice in which you have to pay for the cost of wearing an electronic bracelet. And that in particular, I think, represents the future for the criminal justice system. So it's all these ways that they extract money from the most vulnerable populations, and they are also incentivized to arrest people because it raises money. Well, isn't there a law against it? It sounds naive, but I mean, I thought there was some something in the law that acknowledged that a person who can't pay can't pay. One of the things that set the United States apart from Europe was that relatively early on in the 19th century, it outlaws debtors' prison. But what's happened, I think, in the last 40 years with the system of mass incarceration is that it's really just grown. You know, it's like a monster that keeps growing in, in many different ways. And I think much of this, there haven't been yet the constitutional challenges to this, but it's grown up through individual municipal court practices and then through ways that essentially private debt collectors have gained through the system. So I think ultimately you have activists that are fighting this. The ACLU has played an important role in this, people challenging the practices of municipal courts. But I think that this larger campaign of punishment In many ways, you know, if you can incarcerate people for long periods of time for minor offenses, incarcerating them for a debt becomes much less controversial. So I think these practices ultimately will be rendered unconstitutional, but I think that they've been able to proliferate because of you know, kind of the consensus around punishment in the U.S. Yeah, I was on a talk show once and a caller was defending the practice of referring to people as illegals. And he had hit on a technique that he liked. He said, that person who overstayed his visa, did he break the law or not? Did he break the law or not? You know, and he just kept repeating that. And there's an insistence that what's being objected to is not the person's race or their status, but simply their placement on the wrong side of the law, um, which implicitly applies equally to everyone. You know, homeless people are arrested for public urination, not for homelessness. You know, it sort of seems like the conversation can't move forward unless it's taken to a different level where we talk about how laws are made and how laws are enforced, because otherwise this idea that someone has broken the law is kind of a thought stopper. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely crucial. In many states, if you've been convicted of a felony, you lose the right to vote for the period you're serving in prison, and in some states permanently, in other states for a designated period of time. Something that people know much less about is that in many states, if you have criminal justice debt of the kind that I've been talking about, which almost all people who are incarcerated incur this, you know, it was a real surprise to me because I'm someone who writes about the war on drugs and mass incarceration, but I wasn't even aware of the system of extraction until I started researching it for this article, that 41 states charge people for the cost of imprisonment and 44 states charge people for the cost of probation. So what that means is that nearly everyone who's being arrested or incarcerated is incurring criminal justice debt. And in many states, you can be stripped of your right to vote until you pay off all of your criminal justice debt. So I talk about that essentially as a model modern-day poll tax. Well, the self-perpetuating cycle that, that you write about of debt and criminalization and incarceration doesn't just 
ruin individual lives. It also distorts our understanding of crime and of poverty and of their relationship. It's hard to overstate really how much this, this connection, this confluence of factors has shaped the present landscape. And that's one of the things that you talk about, you know, the effect cumulatively on the racial wealth gap, for instance. Yeah, I think that that's really one of the central points. In the piece, I have kind of a large historical arc. I'm a historian. And so I go back and I talk about the system of debt peonage and convict leasing that followed the Civil War, because in many ways, it's a precedent for what we're seeing today. And when you look at incarceration through the prison of resource extraction, it's overwhelming mainly directed at African-Americans. So again, I think the case of Ferguson became this illustrative case. And it's illustrative largely because people mobilized and fought back. That's really important. We know about this story because of social protest. Absolutely. Well, activists know that you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I sort of seem to be making fun of this kind of left-right convergence on criminal justice reform. But we have to use the energy of the current moment to push for better, I wonder what do you see as the hopeful glimmers uh, at the moment, and what is the role for media? I start out my article by talking about left-right consensus, and I'm a little bit critical of it, not because I don't think the coalitions are important, but because I'm really, in a way, trying to examine the motives mm-hmm. of some of the more conservative elements that are weighing in on incarceration and sentencing reform, for example expanding probation through electronic monitoring has been a way to talk about decarceration. But the problem with it is that it deeply indebts people and, as we've been talking about today, provides this incentive for greater criminalization. Especially this year with the election campaign, there's a lot of discussion of neoliberalism, you know, which is um, the idea of what happens when market practices are applied to different kinds of public goods. And this is a very concrete way that neoliberalism intersects with mass incarceration. So it's not just about the state rolling back social welfare and public goods. It's about the state allowing the upward redistribution of wealth from America's most vulnerable people who are overwhelmingly black and brown. Looking at the recent policy platform that came out for the movement for black lives, I think it's very exciting to see the convergence of people fighting for economic redistribution and against state violence. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, and it's time to thank a few more members who have signed up at the professional protester level, giving $10 or more. So thanks to Olive H., Alex G., and Michelle R. for going above and beyond to support the show and keep it going strong, and even paying for themselves and several others who maybe can't afford to donate but depend on the show. For those who can afford to sign up but haven't yet, remember that members get access to a members-only podcast feed that includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus two episodes of members-only bonus content each month. In the most recent members episode, Amanda and I dove deep into what might be a a cutting-edge way of talking about women's empowerment and what really happens when we decide to think of ourselves as either victims or survivors of an abusive system. I think it's a really interesting talk. I've only heard this topic addressed uh, in this particular way in a couple places, 
so I really think it's worth your time. Uh, so to hear that and to get all of our previous bonus episodes, just find us on Patreon. Membership starts at six bucks a month, but whether you can only chip in one dollar, ten, twenty, or more to help support the show, we really appreciate anything you can give. So please think about signing up. You can find us at patreon.com slash best of left or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. Thanks in advance for your support. The sheer existence of a profit motive in the criminal justice system is something that has received tremendous uh, uh, criticism, uh, a lot of light shown on that particular piece of the puzzle here because of the role that private prisons and, and their rise has played in driving the rise of mass incarceration in this country. And, and you, you brought in the link as well to uh, immigrant detention centers. Uh, but I, I want to sort of cut through a lot of the theoretical, abstract-sounding discussion here and and really get to the human consequences. One of the things that your book really makes, um, uh, does that's different than a lot of the discussion and the media coverage around this issue is it, it puts a human face on the people who uh, who are caught up in this system um, and who in many cases see their, their rights and their very humanity uh, trampled on um, all over the place. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about some of the people that you interview for the book who have actually spent time in private prisons? Absolutely, Rebecca, and that's a great question. And I interviewed um, many incarcerated individuals, formerly incarcerated individuals, their families. I um, opened up a JPay account, which is also another aspect of the privatization of justice where you pay a fee to email people who are behind bars and then you know, they have to pay a fee to email you back. And I spoke to a number of um, individuals who are still incarcerated in private facilities. And it's interesting. Some of them told me, and, and this is in the book, that um, you know some of the corrections officers in these private facilities were actually friendlier than government corrections officials. Um, that you know some of these facilities were very nice and very clean. Um, a lot of them complained that there was just a lack of programming, and that's a uh, big criticism of the private prison industry is just that in order to cut costs, they don't provide the same level of programming that a government facility provides. But what's really interesting is that I asked every single individual who I interviewed for the book uh, who is incarcerated or was incarcerated in a private facility, you know, despite maybe having had an okay, you know, um, sort of uh, experience in one of these facilities, what did they think at the end of the day? Um, what, what do they think about the idea that a private corporation owns and operates the prison they were in? And someone I interviewed for the book said something um, very poignant, and she said, we realized that someone has found a way to make money off of our mistakes and our pain and our misfortune. And, you know, to one of these, to this one woman I interviewed, she said, it was my, oh, my God, our country is so obsessed moment with incarcerating us. Um, they think we're such bad people that they're now making money off of us. Um, and every single in, in every single person I interviewed had the same theme about, you know, feeling, um, you know, very, very uncomfortable with the idea that people were making money off of their incarceration. 
And, um, you know, that's really important at the end of the day. You know, my book makes a lot of recommendations for how to improve outcomes in private prisons, um, how to reduce recidivism rates, how to ensure there's better programming, how to ensure there's better access, um, accountability, transparency, all those are incredibly important. Um, but it's still significantly important to ask, you know, what does it mean as a country that we are making so much money off of incarceration. So the call from advocates has widely been for the course of the past several years and and long before that, but I'm thinking sort of about this most immediate wave of attention around criminal justice reform that we've seen um, in in this particular decade. Um, The call has been to end private prisons, that there should be no profit motive in incarcerating people in the United States of America in 2017. What does your book call for? And do you believe that truly ending private prisons, as we actually heard through some of the rhetoric and and early steps during the Obama years, um, was that administration's goal, at least from the federal side, where they had control and power? Is that a realistic goal? And, And if it is, how do we get there? Well, that's an excellent question. And in the book, I explore how the private prison industry and how the privatization of justice emerged. Um, I take a historical look, and I also make recommendations for how to um, change outcomes for the people who are incarcerated um, in private prisons and private immigration detention centers. And I, I mention in the book that I recognize that even asking these questions about, um, you know, how we how we can change incentives in the private prison industry um, may may have more worrying moral ramifications. You know, if it is as a matter of principle, as some say, wrong to profit from punishment, is anything short of abolition, including proposing reforms, risking complicity in this industry? And I wrestle with that um, a lot in the book and. At the end of the day, this book uh, is a story, and I tell the story through talking to incarcerated individuals, their families, corrections officers, um, policymakers, mayors of small towns, restaurant owners, directors of corrections, um, even uh, private prison officials themselves in some cases. And I think that given the reality that uh, president Trump is president of the United States. Uh, we have Attorney General Sessions who, um, you know, certainly um, has ties to the private prison industry as our Attorney General. I think it's unrealistic to think that the industry will be eliminated in the near future. Given that reality, I think it's important to put pressure on these private corporations to change the incentives um, in their contracts. So, for example, today, most of these corporations are just incentivized to fill their beds in their detention centers, in their prisons. They are paid you know, per individual. Sometimes they receive funding. Um, maybe they may receive their what a contract, for example, may um, may provide that the private prison corporation get paid as if the facility is 100% full, even if it's only 50% full. You know, these are things that need to change. Um, I suggest in the book that um, we increase the fines on these corporations when they're non-compliant. So if they are not providing the programming that's required in the contracts, they should be fined and fined at such an amount that they find it you know, difficult. They find it easier to comply with the contract than to pay the fines, and that's not happening today. Um, so these are difficult questions, but I think at the end of the day, 
um, while private, while the private prison uh, corporations um, exist, we really do need to change incentives in the industry. In 1970, we had about 300,000 Americans in jails and prisons. That number has increased nearly tenfold, so that in our time, we have two and a half million Americans living in crowded cages, some of which are so small that people have to literally sleep with their back against the wall because they cannot even lie flat on any space in the cell. Here in the United States, we have 9 million people on parole. We have 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prison population. This astronomical number of prisoners has almost nothing to do with our crime rate, but it has a great deal to do with politics and profit. Richard Nixon's war on drugs was a barely disguised attack on the black population of this nation to help them stem the advances of the civil rights movement. Now, that's a horrible thing to say, but I wouldn't say it if I couldn't prove it. It is broadly documented that the war on drugs was directly to break the back of the black civil rights movement in that time. And this isn't communist China. This isn't the Soviet Union. This is America, a constitutional democracy that imprisons millions and ruins the lives of millions more with parole and criminal record laws that disproportionately keeps minorities locked in multiple generations of poverty. The most the the almost accidental byproducts of this insane and inexcusable mass incarceration is that it is reducing the excess workforce, and it creates a for-profit industry of building, supplying, and staffing prisons. Even in states like ours that don't have for-profit prisons, there are tremendous numbers of for-profit companies that are making huge incomes off of our prisons. And in 35 states, if you have a criminal record, you can't even vote, which is part of how the white wealthy majority maintains control of the government. You get enough people on parole, you get enough people with a criminal record so that they cannot even vote, and you maintain control of power. Now, other nations that have decriminalized drug use and addiction, such as Portugal, have seen precipitous reductions in drug use, which dramatically reduces the prison population while enjoying a huge reduction in crime. Our Attorney General, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, (laughs) has instructed federal prosecutors to seek the most harsh sentences for drug offenders, reversing the Obama administration's lightening of sentences for the... uh, and at the same time, Trump announced after Obama had said we're not, uh, the federal government's not going to use for-profit prisons anymore, Trump immediately reversed that. Folks, 
We had more than 60,000 overdose deaths in the United States last year. That's how many people died in the Vietnam War in 20 years. 60,000 deaths. That's more than gun victims and automobile crash victims added together. 60,000. We are way out ahead of the rest of the world in drug overdoses. Our war on drugs is an abysmal failure, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows it doesn't work, but it is extremely profitable. And so Senator Claire McCaskill, Senator Roy Blunt, Jeff Sessions, President Trump are guilty of murder in the tens of thousands of Americans because they are promoting tough-on-crime laws related to drugs that absolutely is proven not to work. The way to change our judicial system is not only known, but it is in practice in most of Western Europe. We are just doing everything wrong, and we're doing it on purpose for political gain and for profit. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. And, and you know what company I'm talking about. It's basically the one company online. Uh, you know, you probably shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases or you have your standard selection of home goods delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. It'd be great if we could all avoid them somehow. But, you know, it's like climate change. What we really need is regulation, not just personal choices. So until we can get some anti-monopoly trust-busting legislation passed, a lot of us are going to continue to make the not-completely-irrational choice of shopping there. So whether you feel your conscience needs soothing or not, you can support the production of this show by using our affiliate link and redirecting some of those purchasing dollars to us. Your shopping experience is identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. So to get the link, go to bestoftheleft.com and use our banner to click through to either the U.S., Canada, or U.K. stores and bookmark the page so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. California's fire season has been particularly fierce this year, with fires consuming nearly 800,000 acres. Fire seasons are growing more intense, extending longer into fall, and demanding more resources. In fact, these are the deadliest fires ever recorded in California's history. And you will hear reports on the forest fires, but what you won't hear is even more interesting. One solution is to use inmates to fight fires. Camp 13 is a inmate firefighter camp where we are on call up to seven days a week. We can be called out at any time, day or night. We basically fight fires. Yay, women, women inmates, fighting fires makes them feel good, awesome. All right, job is done, let's go home. Who wants a sandwich? Here are just a few words not included in NBC's video on the inmates 
fighting these fires. Capitalism, slave labor, forced labor, prison industrial complex, police state, profit, climate change? How about climate change? Don't want to factor that in there somewhere? As the New York Times claims in their article about it, by choice for less than $2 an hour, the female inmate firefighters of California worked their bodies to the breaking point. The New York Times reporter said, I could see why inmates would accept the risks. Compared with life among the general prison population, the conservation camps are bastions of civility. They are less violent and offer more space. They smell of eucalyptus, the ocean, fresh blooms. Ah, fresh blooms as you fight fires as a slave laborer. Keep in mind, per capita, we are the number one prison nation on this planet. So when you're stuck in prison and you're given a choice of, well, you can go out onto the roads and fight fires and, you know, be out in the, in the sun all day, or you can stay here in a cage fighting gang members all day. Not much of a choice, is it? It's kind of, it's kind of like a, you had a, a scorpion and cobra, and someone was like, which do you want to hold? And then they go, oh, he chose to hold a scorpion. Well, he's dying now, but it, it, earlier, she was his choice. These are nonviolent inmates getting paid nothing wages, a dollar an hour, two dollars an hour. And by the way, when you're in jail, you do have to buy things. Toothbrushes and things like that, clothing, and uh, uh, just to make phone calls to your family is often outrageously expensive in prison. Where do they get that money if you show if you show up broke and poor well you do it by working massive corporations use this slave labor which is allowable under our constitution about 3800 inmates both women and men fight fires in california making up about 13 percent of california's firefighting force the fire program saves taxpayers 124 million dollars per year according to the california department of corrections and rehabilitation oh we oh okay by exploiting these poor desperate people we save a few tax uh, all right let's do that what's that average out to 12 cents a piece per taxpayer and then they're often not even trained that well the training they receive which often lasts as little as three weeks is significantly less than the three-year apprenticeship that full-time civilian firefighters get three years compared to three weeks one inmate said the pay is ridiculous there are some days when we are worn down to the core and this isn't that different from slave conditions and it's not just fires of course according to the prison policy initiative the average pay for a prison worker is 93 cents an hour california had a years-long litigation over reducing the population of prisons deemed unconstitutionally overcrowded by the u.s supreme court in 2010 one of the reasons the state gave in court for not paroling more inmates in california was because it would be bad for the economy. You know who else argued that? Plantation owners. Not only is it clear that these inmates are being exploited for their situation, but on top of that, we keep them in jail so that we can exploit them. Corporate Democrat du jour Kamala Harris was the state attorney general at the time that was argued in court. Of course, when it was revealed to the public, she said she was shocked that her office 
had ever argued such a thing. Look, this is how late-stage capitalism works. People are desperate, and their desperation is exploited. They're willing to put their lives on the line for pennies. And yet NBC News will report on this like it's a feel-good story. It's the power of women. Yes, these are strong women, but that doesn't make this good. That doesn't make this happy. That just makes this an example of desperation. All it really shows is what people will do when they have a police state gun to their head and an economic gun to their head. What choice do these people really have? In Louisiana, there is uh, there has been some criminal justice reform that are going to free a significant amount of prisoners convicted of nonviolent offenses earlier than they had been scheduled to be re- released. I presume in part uh, because of overcrowding, but also uh, because there was a uh, understanding that these sentences were draconian apparently the sheriff of caddo parish in louisiana has a different perspective on the value of prison here he is at a press conference seemingly i mean there are multiple microphones with those little mic flags in front of him so he must have known that somebody was recording this and He's got a bunch of uh, police officers behind him, and he's presumably his deputies, I guess. And he's speaking out to an audience, so he must have known that people were going to hear what he was going to say. Yet, he went on to say this. Place out there, I don't want uh, state prisoners, okay? They are a necessary evil to keep the doors open that we keep a few or keep some out there. And that's the ones that you can work that's the ones that can pick up trash, the work release programs. But guess what? Those are the ones that they're releasing. In addition to the in addition to the bad ones, and I call these bad, in addition to them, they're releasing some good ones that we use every day to to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchen, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. Let me put into context what he's saying he is upset that the nonviolent ones the good ones are getting released because then we can't get free labor from them what sense does that make these are the ones who could actually you know live a life in society why would we let them go we lose all the free labor I really get the sense that this sheriff has lost a little bit of, 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 I think he's lost the thread as it were. Well, I went into law enforcement to make sure that we had a compliant, completely free workforce. Or he read Hillary's book. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I just say, look, we have a heritage in this state. 
of mostly African Americans working for free. It's just part of our heritage. And they're attacking our culture. Last week, a Louisiana sheriff gave a press conference railing against a new prisoner release program because it cost him free labor from, quote, some good inmates that we use every day to wash cars, change oil in the cars, and to cook in the kitchen, unquote. Two days later, news broke that up to 40% of the firefighters battling California's outbreak of forest fires are prison inmates working for $2 an hour. So write Angela Hanks and Annie McGrew in a new piece up at Talk Poverty. Angela joins me in studio. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. So, Angela, I was horrified when I read um, that that the share was actually as high as 40%, as I said, of the people on the front lines battling these raging forest fires in California are actually inmates who have no choice but to be there because they're being used for their labor. Um, And it's practically free labor. How is this even legal? Um, it certainly is shocking. And as much news as there's been about the devastating fires in California, um, this is something that's really been underreported. Um, these are people who are incarcerated, who are making $2 an hour for what are completely dangerous jobs. I mean, you know, ultimately they're risking their lives, um, for pay that no other worker outside of, uh, the prison system, uh, earns. Um, it is unbelievably true that this is actually legal. Uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act does not cover, which, uh, says that people should be paid at least the federal minimum wage does not cover prisoners. So if you are incarcerated and you are working, you are not uh, afforded the same rights that people who are not incarcerated, incarcerated are. Um, yet, uh, the prison system can put you in this incredibly dangerous job and say, well, we'll give you $2 an hour, which is a higher wage uh, than most other prisoners get, but it still is $2 an hour. So effectively, it is the law of the land in 2017 in the United States of America that prisoners can actually have their labor exploited practically for free, including in incredibly dangerous work like fighting fires. Yes. And California is far from uh, the outlier here. Um, the California program has been around since the 1940s but prison labor has existed in one form or another uh, in this country, uh, you know, beginning uh, right after slavery with convict leasing to chain gangs to the modern uh, prison work uh system that we have today. So this is something that is not new, and it's always been built on the system of exploitation and on punishment. Well, and given the disproportionate representation of people of color, and particularly men of color behind bars, this, since you mentioned slavery, I mean, it it feels evocative of, of literally legalized slavery persisting in 2017. Am I, am I overreaching here? Uh, when you look at the Louisiana example, um, for instance, uh, 66% of Louisiana's inmates are African American. So this is certainly, um, when you think, when you look at their program and you look at the history of Louisiana, both with slavery and convict leasing, and the ACLU has drawn this, uh, line in Louisiana as well, um, it's not hard to get there, um, that this is something that's just taken on a modern form, but it's ultimately the same type of exploitation, um, that that state and many others have seen since the beginning of this country. Now, you mentioned that the California inmates who have been on the front lines fighting those forest fires have been paid a whopping $2 an hour, right, if they're lucky. 
lucky, but they actually seem to be some of the lucky ones here. Um, as the piece that you wrote for Talk Poverty notes, most inmates are actually paid far less for their labor. Yes. So uh, the average wage for uh, an incarcerated person who's working is 86 cents an hour. Uh, 86. Be, I just I just want to pause yeah. there for a second because I want people to take that in. You said 86 cents an hour yes. is the average wage. 86 cents less than one dollar. Uh, in uh, some states, inmates are not paid for their work at all. Um, so they are essentially performing slavery. Um, and this is something that is happening all across the country. There are one and a half million uh, people in state and federal prisons, and more than half of those individuals are working um, for cents on the dollar um, in, in really difficult jobs, too. I mean, obviously, um, in California, the example of fighting fires is one where you're literally thinking about people putting their lives on the line. But, you know, they're also doing all kinds of work around the prisons. They're working f- for outside uh, for-profit and nonprofit organizations. Um, they're building goods um, for the state that they'll, the state will eventually sell. I mean, they're doing real work um, and they're not getting wages and someone else is profiting off of their labor. Your piece names a few of the types of work that people behind bars with no choice are being paid almost nothing to do. Um, some of those examples include uh, grinding meat, um, producing Starbucks holiday products. You can think about that when you go get your pumpkin spice latte today um, and and even uniforms for workers at McDonald's. But one stood out to me in particular mm-hmm. as some of the most twisted irony I, I can remember reading. Um, and that's that some inmates are actually being charged with producing body armor for police officers who uh, in many cases have been involved in police-involved killings um, and and maybe otherwise have uh, put the safety of people who have come into contact with the criminal justice system um, at risk. Um, they're even, if I'm understanding this correctly, making the targets that cops use in target practice, like literally the piece of paper that has that body outline on it that, that cops shoot at when they're practicing. Prison inmates are making those for the cops. Am I getting this right? Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, they make the paper firearm targets. Uh, they make body armor. Uh, they make uh, targets to practice uh, shooting at vehicles. Um, basically, all of these instruments that the police and the military use uh, to practice um, for the field, um, people who have been incarcerated by that same group of people are, are developing the um, uh, the products that they'll use to um to provide that training. I mean, we were we were talking a little bit about this before we started taping, and actually my producer, Will, noted, and I think he's right to say this, it's reminiscent, we mentioned the slavery connection here, this part is reminiscent, you know, to me as well, of the Holocaust. Do you feel that that's an apt comparison? You know, I mean, I think that we're looking at a system that is honestly, I mean, devastating, exploit- devastatingly exploitive. Um, and there's no way to really separate this from the ugly history, both in this country and others, um, of exploit, of exploiting marginalized people, um, for the gain of others, um, who have some political and social power. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, this is exactly like this other situation. And, and, but, but ultimately the, the structures around this are the same, um, that we see in a lot of kind of, um, 
exploitive and dark areas of our past. You actually put a quote in your piece that I, I, I feel is worth reading. Um, Shaka Senghor, um, an author who himself has come into contact with the criminal justice mm-hmm. system and reflects on on those experiences in in a memoir. He was also featured in um, Ava DuVernay's uh, acclaimed documentary released a couple of years back called 13th. Um, and he notes in that documentary, and you quote him saying this, the 13th Amendment says no involuntary servitude except for those who have been duly convicted of a crime. So effectively, there we go, right? If if you've been convicted of a crime, our society has decided uh, we're going to throw you back to the days of slavery or, or possibly even worse. So I want to not just focus on the horrible, shocking um, uh, pieces that have come to light as you've done this work and as the forest fires have raged on, drawing national headlines. What are the solutions here? How do we actually move into what I would view as modern society that doesn't have slavery by another name? Well, you know, if you buy the argument, which I think we all should, that prison is about rehabilitation, um, then we should actually be trying to prepare people for a life outside of prisons and jails. Um, so that means actually taking it seriously and trying to put in place policies that will actually help people find a job, help people pay off their debts, help people enter, the, re-enter their communities and the labor market. And so one of the things that um, we landed on um, was taking these prison programs and turning them into apprenticeship programs um, that provide some vocational training, which has shown uh, to uh, increase the likelihood of employment upon release. Um, and turn it into something where inmates are not only getting paid a wage, but they're also getting a credential at the end of the program that's valuable outside of the confines of, of a prison um, and will also help them uh, get a job when they're released. Um, Is it a crazy thought that maybe we should just say prisoners should get the minimum wage because they're doing work? At at a minimum, if nothing else happens on this topic, prisoners should be paid at least the minimum wage. Um, that is where we have to begin. Um there are different ways to build programs to make them more socially useful uh, for people who are incarcerated. But ultimately, if they don't pay a fair wage, they are not worth um, not worth doing. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support Operation Push and join the Juneteenth 2018 call to end prison slavery. Two years ago, a nationwide prison strike on the anniversary of the Attica uprising led by prisoners behind the Free Alabama Movement put the inhumane conditions of America's prison in the national spotlight. It's clear now that was just the beginning. On Martin Luther King Day this year, Florida inmates, part of the third largest prison system in the country, began a work stoppage and commissary boycott called Operation Push. Florida, like many other states, relies on prisoners to grow food, do laundry, cook, clean, and handle maintenance in the prisons, work that would cost millions of dollars if contracted out to companies. Prisoners also do work outside the prison, performing 3.15 million hours of work valued at more than $38 million statewide 
just in 2017, including cleanup work after Hurricane Irma, just like workers in labor unions, which of course prisoners are not allowed to be part of, the prisoners are withholding their work to amplify their value and get Governor Rick Scott's attention. The Operation Push campaign demands are simple. They want payment for prison labor rather than the current slave arrangement, an end to outrageous canteen prices, and reintroduction of parole incentives to lifers and those with parole or release dates unimaginably far in the future, also sometimes called Buck Rogers dates. In addition to these three primary demands, the prisoners are also fighting to stop overcrowding and acts of brutality by prison officers, expose dangerous environmental living conditions, stop the state from executing prisoners by using a legal loophole to get around the execution moratorium, and restore voting rights as a basic human right regardless of criminal convictions. It's been two months now, and the campaign is still active despite retaliation on both the prisoners and their families. In response to the protests, the Florida Department of Corrections canceled weekend visitations at several state institutions and have excused this act by claiming family members are bringing contraband into the prisons. Family members and activists have been rallying outside the public visitor's entrance this week in response. For more information on Operation Push and details on how you can support it, visit the Industrial Workers of the World's Incarcerated Workers Organization Committee website at incarceratedworkers.org. There you will find out how to attend or organize an upcoming event, have your organization officially endorse the campaign, write to a striking prisoner to show your support, and donate to the fundraiser to support the prisoners during their strike. You can also follow at IWW underscore IWOC on Twitter and use the hashtag Operation Push on social media to spread the word. Whenever the strike ends, the fight will still be far from over. You can help carry the torch and raise awareness about the shameful state of American incarceration and the modern slavery it condones by joining the Juneteenth 2018 Call to End Prison Slavery. This call to action for international organizing and solidarity on or around June 19th, the anniversary of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, comes from a prisoner activist in Texas, Keith Malik Washington, Washington, along with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee and the new African Black Panther Party's prison chapter, asks for, quote, mutual aid in raising the public's awareness in regard to the movement which seeks to abolish prison slavery and amend the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, unquote. Currently, he is advocating for organizing viewings of Ava DuVernay's Netflix documentary 13th, which, if you haven't seen, you must. You can learn more about this action by going to the Fight Toxic Prisons website, which is linked in the show notes. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofaleft.com. So if fighting mass incarceration and modern-day slavery in America is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting hashtag Operation Push and joining the Juneteenth 2018 call to end prison slavery via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
We've just heard clips today, starting with lead stories, that's L-E-I-D stories, highlighting how marginalized communities are targeted as revenue sources for cities through law enforcement. Counterspin focused on the costs of incarceration levied on those least able to pay. Off-Kilter spoke with Lauren Brooke about the nature of the profit motive in private prisons. Dr. Roger Ray, as part of one of his progressive faith sermons, talked about the types of policies we put in place for the sake of power and profit, even though we know they don't work for society. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight dove into the nature of our modern version of slavery and the media's willingness to frame it in an almost entirely positive light. The Majority Report made fun of the Louisiana sheriff who was lamenting the loss of his slave labor force. Off-Kilter discussed some more of the nooks and crannies of our forced labor system. And finally, you just heard our activism in support of Operation Push and the Juneteenth call to end prison slavery. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Eduardo, long-time listener, but first-time caller. The only reason I took the time and effort to call in was to point out one little big thing that is bothering me about centrist liberals lately. That is a false equivalence of socialism and fascism. This is what is known as the horseshoe theory. There's a far left is said to resemble far right. Similarly, as two ends of a horseshoe bend around to almost meet. This is, of course, a fallacy that many liberals are starting to fall into. I could point to many instances where um, they... Uh, Liberals in their constant attempt to seek a mythical center criticize leftists when, in their eyes, they start acting like fascists for getting stronger in the resistance to the right. But I will only point to one specific instance in the Rise of the Right episode, wherein Timothy Snyder, I believe, um, states, Fascism says, don't attend to the facts of everyday life because the truth is in the spiritual connection to the leader. Then he drops Lenin and socialism as a given, as an example of what 20th century fascism is. Because supposedly Lenin advocating uh, bending the truth, this is what prompted me to speak up. I am not a tanky. In fact, I'm very much anti-authoritarian. But Marxist-Leninists are comrades, and I have to do my part to help to clear up a little of the heavy decades-long propaganda continually perpetuated by capitalist liberals. And in this case, it is that Lenin never advocated bending the stick of truth. This term is commonly attributed to his pamphlet, What is to be Done, uh, circa 1902. But the stick he referred to was in reference to economists whom he said had bent the stick in one direction. And so they had to bend it the other way. Lenin's actual metaphor used in speaking to the Congress and in debates was more in line of a chain, he said. At every stage of the class struggle, you must, you must look for the key link in the chain of development, emphasizing the importance of that link to which all others are subjugated. All of this is, is being for the goal of seizing the means of production. So again, I just want to emphasize and implore to liberals, please don't punch left, especially with fallacious Cold War-era propaganda. Please don't compare anarchists, socialists, communists to the alt-right. No one despises fascism more than we do. Remember, we are on your side, just a few inches further. Thank you. This is Eduardo calling from New Mexico. Much luck.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, if you're listening very closely, you may have noticed that at the top of the show, I promised that this uh, was going to be an episode about the intersectionality of several things uh, all of which you've heard about so far, but I also included immigration. And I, don't, I don't think immigration's been brought up very much, if at all, in the show so far. And, uh, and so I, I need to rectify that right now. In the process of putting today's episode together, Amanda actually came across a Twitter feed, uh, not just the feed, but, you know, a, what is it called? Like a thread, a rant, when someone puts a whole bunch of posts on Twitter altogether. She came across one of those that was absolutely fascinating and fits into today's episode so well when you consider the intersectionality of, of these things. You know, we're talking about prison and slave labor and all of that, and uh, and we're going to tie immigration policy into that with a real nice little bow. So this uh, Twitter thread comes from Sarah Tabor and... I don't think I'm going to comment very much as I go along. I'm just going to read pretty much the entire thing and let it speak for itself. It's pretty self-explanatory, and I I did follow the links that she posts to articles supporting her claims and her and the quotes she uses and all of that. And so I I've I've fact-checked to the extent that I am able. So uh, here's what Sarah Tabor has to say, and uh, and you will see how this all ties in. In light of what's going on with the Dreamers, it's time to talk about Japanese internment. Because the DACA showdown is Japanese internment 2.0. Japanese immigrants in the 19th and early 20th centuries came to the U.S. in large part for manual farm labor in California. Sound familiar? Japan had much more advanced horticulture than the U.S. at that time, so these immigrants weren't just bringing brute labor. They were bringing a lot of basic how-tos of commercial farming that built the foundation for California's success as an agricultural powerhouse today. Japanese immigrant farm laborers American dreamed so hard, many families were able to save money to buy their own land and start farming for themselves. The California Farm Bureau was quoted by the news saying that Japanese farmers were responsible for 40% of all vegetables grown in the state, including nearly 100% of all tomatoes, celery, strawberries, and peppers. The Central Valley used to be peppered with Japanese family farms. Not anymore. What happened to them? Japanese internment was a land grab by white farmers. Full stop. The initial call for Japanese internment came mere hours after the Pearl Harbor bombing from the Salinas Valley Vegetable Grower Shipper Association, a.k.a. Japanese internment was initiated by the California Farm Lobby. And she quotes from a Washington Post article, Bitter Harvest, from February 2nd, 1992. The article reads, The average value per acre of all West Coast farms in 1940 was $37.94, whereas of Japanese farms was $279.96. 
three-quarters of the acres of Japanese farmland were devoted to actual crop production, whereas only one-quarter of the acres of all farmland in the area was planted in crops. Unquote. Check out those numbers. Japan's farm traditions were based on maximizing use of space, so they made more money per acre. That tends to drive up land prices, and rising land prices tend to make people whose farming skills can't keep up feel very nervous. So, Japanese farmers' success came from having tight management skills, and that threatened their white neighbors. White farmers had a choice. Level up their game, or play dirty. Let me reiterate, given a choice between being good at their job and lobbying the government to make their problems go away, U.S. farmers chose the second option. This is a classic move that those in the farm industry will still recognize. Quoting Austin E. Anson of the Salinas Vegetable Grower Shipper Association, quote, We're charged with wanting to get rid of the Japs for selfish reasons. We might as well be honest. We do. It's a question of whether the white man lives on the Pacific coast or the brown man. They came into this valley to work, and they stayed to take over, unquote. They weren't even trying to hide it. Japanese internment was about white good old boys being jealous of successful immigrants. There was a downside, though. Remember how Japanese-American farmers were growing nearly half the country's produce, and the U.S. war strategy was, an army marches on its stomach so we need super-solid supply chains for food? It turns out putting most of the country's skilled farmers in jail didn't help with making food. Once internment started, food shortages quickly followed. How did the U.S. handle that misstep? Victory gardens. Victory gardens were the propagandistic answer to the chaos created by FDR's roundup and imprisonment of 120,000 Japanese Americans in early 1942. So yeah, victory gardens were less plucky nation pitches in with the war effort and more, oh wow, we systematic racismed so hard that we punched a hole in the economy. Do we admit we made the mistake and fix it? Nah, let's foist the consequences off on civilians. Now what does this have to do with the Dreamers? Like Japanese families in the early 20th century, a lot of U.S. immigrant population today is families that came to work on farms, and they've been here just long enough to actually get established and really start building a life. The U.S. was kind of okay with immigration as long as it was get in, work for really cheap, get out, but we're at a demographic turning point where a critical mass of farm immigrant families have reached some upward mobility and established themselves en masse. And here's the part that most people don't know unless they work in some really specific parts of the farm economy. Most of the U.S. thinks of immigrant farm workers as grunt labor, and yes, most of the brute force work on farms is done by Latinx immigrants. But first- and second-generation Latinx immigrants are also the knowledge base in modern U.S. agriculture. I'm going to tell you guys a secret. A lot of U.S. farmers don't actually know that much about farming. They know a lot about writing checks to Latinx contractors who know how to farm. The U.S. farm industry isn't just dependent on Latinx immigrants for labor. They're dependent on Latinx immigrants for knowing how to farm how to manage a harvest, how to run a packing house, how to keep a fleet of farm vehicles running. And I bet you money that scares the hell out of a lot of white people. 
Not the farmers, funnily enough. The actual farmers tend to be a lot more at peace with it than the rest of the rural suburban white population. Don't get me wrong, they still voted for Trump, even though they knew his immigration policies are deadly for farms. They vote for conservatives and just expect things to magically turn out immigration-friendly anyway. The thing is, farmers aren't the influential voting bloc they used to be. The new wrinkle entering the immigration debate right now, in my opinion, is private prisons. Prison labor has been used in the U.S. for manufacturing for quite some time, but it's making significant new inroads into farm labor. Especially now that it's becoming harder for immigrants to work in the U.S., farms are turning to inmate contracts. Prisoners working on a farm is a little different from manufacturing. In manufacturing, folks are locked down in a building. It's pretty easy to control your workers. But farming is outdoors, and nowadays, super mechanized. That means to get anything done, you have to be able to give someone tools or a tractor and have a reasonable expectation that they'll use them for work, instead of, say, murdering the foreman and running off. You also need people with farm work experience. Farm work is an art. You don't just get productive labor out of stoners. I say this as someone who's personally supervised convict labor crews made of people in for minor drug charges. It's just a mess all around. So, say you're a private prisoner contractor who's looking at farm labor deals. To keep those clients happy, you need a steady stream of nonviolent criminals who also have farm work experience. Talking out the side of my mouth here, but if I were them, I'd see crackdowns on migrant laborers as a fantastic business move. I might even press my congressman to write and support bills like the Securing America's Future Act. Anyway, that's my best guess as to why the GOP can't get itself together to support a bill that most Americans want. There are a lot of primary voters and a lot of donors who have a vested interest in criminalizing immigrants. To connect this back to Japanese internment, internment was pushed through by a small farm lobby that wanted the land under Japanese-American family farms, sure, but they couldn't have pulled it off without the rest of the country's xenophobia. Today, we have private prisons whose business model looks like they just kinda might depend on everyone being okay with jailing immigrants for being immigrants, and there's enough butthurt white people with economic anxiety to make that happen. Maybe. It's really encouraging how many people support DACA. We still have the same ugly dynamics that brought Japanese internment to life, but we also have a lot of people today who know better. So keep those calls to your reps coming, folks. Again, uh, that was Sarah Tabor on Twitter. Her handle is Sarah Tabor underscore BWW. And to finish this off, uh, remember what she said about the conservatives who uh, depend on immigrant labor, but keep on voting Republican anyway with the assumption that immigration policy will just somehow magically work itself out to be immigrant-friendly anyway. Uh, well, I have one last clip for you that I just heard today while making the show and taking a break and making myself lunch. Uh, I think it really caps things off nicely. Have a listen. Every decade or so, America's mass media are surprised to discover that migrant farm workers are still being miserably paid and despicably treated by the industry that profits from their labor. Stories run, the public is outraged again, assorted officials pledge action, then nothing changes. News reports recently have redocumented that the shameful abuse of these hard-working, hard-traveling families continues. 
The Los Angeles Times report revealed that even if they receive the legal minimum wage, many farm laborers earn less than $17,500 a year because of the low pay and the seasonal nature of their work. Moreover, they're often housed in shacks, old chicken coops, shipping containers, and squalid motels. This year, though, multi-billion dollar agribusiness interests from Florida to California are uniting in a push for new assistance, not for workers, but themselves. While they back Trump for president, many are now expressing shock that he may actually try to fulfill his campaign promise to cut off the flow of undocumented immigrants to their fields. They now admit that these immigrants make up as much as 70% of the industry's workforce, so they've rushed to Washington, demanding a special exemption from their president's planned lockout of Mexican laborers. In the process, they've suddenly recharacterized the very migrants they've been so callously mistreating as noble employees who are essential to the USA's food security. This is Jim Hightower saying, Big Ag deserves no special break at all. But if Trump and Congress give any help to them, they should be required to pay a living wage, provide decent family housing and health care, and treat all farm workers with the respect due to people who really are essential to our food security. To help push for basic human justice, connect with the United Farm Workers at UFW.org. As if right on cue, am I right? Now, keep those comments coming in. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. The voicemail line is definitely working again. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook and now Spotify, and you can even rate our Alexa skill to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and helping share all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.